This is Product Knowledge, the podcast about creating and marketing products that improve people's lives. I'm Andrea Schwabi, Director of Media Services at Graphos Product. This episode's guest is a world-renowned expert in taking inventive products to market. Philip Valitza is a mechanical engineer who's worked for large corporations and coached several product brands through the development and launch process. Recently, he shifted focus from single products to more complex projects with product lines. Philip Velitza is also founder of The Product Startup and the host of The Product Startup podcast. He has a comprehensive view of product design, which begins with the idea and ends at sales. He believes product design extends into every stage of a new product's life cycle. Today, we highlight his ideas on the product developmental life cycle. Philip Velitza joined us on the line from Houston, Texas. Graphos Product CEO Laurier Mandin kicked off the conversation. How are you? Good, how are you? We're fantastic. Uh, so, Philip, through your work with the product startup, you've helped inventors take their ideas and turn them into a physical product, manufacture it, and take it to market. How has technology democratized the way all that is done now? Yeah, so I think technology just enables the average person now to get at least dip their toe into doing some of that stuff. So if you have the inclination and you have the time to go and learn about those things, it's and the world is your oyster, so to speak, especially now with the Internet. I mean, I can't imagine uh, having a better resource like this. If you imagine what we had, you know, if we had the Internet back in the you know, 70s or 60s or whatever, where we would be today with just democratizing information and, you know, connecting people together that had the different skill sets needed to launch something. Um, at, at Graphos Product, we work with our clients on strategy a lot, and we have packages like our innovative products, go-to-market roadmap, and others to help clients improve their chances of success. And you've developed your own, uh, I think you call it a roadmap process for taking a product to market. Can you give us a quick run-through of the steps for that? I'll read off the steps, and then we're, we'll get you to just say a few things about each one. So first is get the idea, validate the market, prototype, and really that's a concept step. Uh, file provisional patent application, validate customer needs, design, a functional prototype, validate the design, file a patent application, design for manufacture, which I'm really curious about because you've got prototypes that are functional and now we have to design for manufacture. I'm curious why that's different. Funding, making it, getting it to market, marketing, selling, and then shipping. So uh, let's start with getting the idea. Yeah, so people usually find the idea because they're trying to solve a problem in their own life or, you know, friends and family's lives, or they've seen a gap in the market that no one else sees because you you have a unique way of looking at the world and no one else might have that perspective. And so you're in a good position to come up with something that someone else, you know, hasn't. And there's a million ways to skin a cat. I mean, there's just crazy brainstorming. Sometimes uh, yep. people just get the whole concept in their head and it's actually right the first time even. Yeah, we talk about how important it is that you remember what that idea was because that's the job to be done that you have the, when, you know, at, at, the, at the heart of that idea. And often inventors kind of go crazy from there and, and you know, iterations down the road, they've already forgotten what that main idea was. They're, they're kind of lost in all the features. So now next step is validating the market. Yeah, and will people actually pay for it? Do people even want what you're selling? It might be a cool solution for you or for your immediate family and friends, but what about people that don't know you that aren't obligated to tell you what you want to hear? Right. 
Now, the next one is there's actually three steps of designing, and the first one is the the concept prototype. So what's a concept prototype, and how is it different from the later versions? The concept prototype is basically like think of it as a coffee table book. It's just pretty on the outside, and it gets people to start talking about stuff, about the problem. Um, most people are visual, or a lot of people are visual, and so if you were to approach them and have this abstract conversation about a physical product, they wouldn't be able to to follow. But if you bring them something and say, you know, here's this wooden Palm Pilot with a Dell in it, could you imagine carrying that? You know, right. Right. oh yeah, absolutely. Okay, next step is filing provisional patent applications. Uh, so that's the patent, in the U.S. anyway, that's uh, patent pending status. Um, so you can file that yourself or you can go to a lawyer and do that for you. In the U.S., it's about uh, $60 or so in fees or about $1,200 or so for a lawyer to do it. Um, and basically all that does is it reserves your spot in line with the USPTO um, where they uh, will use that date as your filing date. So then it gives you some it uh, gives you about a year where you can go and talk to people about your idea and say that it's patent pending. You can even go out and sell it if you wanted to. Um, and then it gives you time to put the application together and, and formally you know, document and everything. Okay. Now, the next step, step five, is the first of a couple of validation steps. This is validating customer needs. Yeah, so now you're getting into more detail. It's not, would you buy this wooden Palm Pilot with a dowel in it? It's what specifically does it have to do, have to do in order for you to pull your wallet out of your back pocket? Um, is it a contacts manager? Is it a phone? Is it um, what are you, know, what you as, and then that, at this point, you're probably creating user personas, right? And I think my favorite one is um, we have uh, Trader Joe's here in the States, and they have it down to where, you know, this person is a professor and drives a, a station wagon with that's a Woody. And, you know, I mean, it's like super detailed and you'll probably have multiple personas, but that's, you know, I think you need to get to a certain level to where you can get into people's head to be able to market to them yeah, exactly. or, you know, make decisions. Well, you want to be able to imagine it's a real person, right? And, and that's what it does when you, when you flesh out and add those extra details that, that aren't really necessary, but they, but real people have lots of extra details. When, when we get yeah, there's a, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say um, there are a lot of decisions made between the first and the last step, right? And you can't always go to your client and say, uh, "Do you think the color red or blue? Do you think it should be uh, textured or smooth?" You you know, and at some point you're going to have to make those decisions as the product owner. So you need to be able to be in their head or in their thought process a hundred percent. So if that means that you need to, you know take on the the role of a you know house husband housewife uh, if you're marketing to that demographic then maybe you need to do that for a week and really see how it is to carry a, a kid on your hip or you know a load of laundry or to do all the dishes and trying to manage screaming children while you're on the phone while you're doing other things you know that that market it's almost like you, when you know I'm a parent and I buy kids clothes and some kids clothes have buttons that you can't really open um, yeah, that that's quickly. amazing. I've been through that. Like we'd we'd buy the ones for our kids with uh, with zippers on them because at least you can do those up like with one hand as opposed to these little yeah, buttons. Yeah, absolutely. That, you know, it takes you twenty minutes to button up your your kid. By then, you have other problems. So I have a question in in validating the customer needs. Is is that sort of the first place that you have to guard against feature creep? 
Yes. Yes, because you're going to have people telling you, you talk to 15 people and 15 people will tell you something slightly different. Right. Um, and then the flip side is if you go in and say, uh, you want a Palm Pilot, don't you? You want this thing in your pocket, don't you? Uh-huh. Of course, they're going to tell you yes. So you can't ask leading questions either. So it's, you know, you have to do a very careful you know, prodding session where you go in, you ask open-ended questions, you ask them to validate, you continue asking the, you know, the five whys, you d- dig deep down into the root of the problem, uh, but then also stay focused, um, as you guys were saying, under the original goal. Uh, you know, what, what is the end, res- end goal of this product? What's the MVP? Not the plus one, I guess. Right. So now step six Sounds like it's it's been done the whole time, but now it's the design step. So what's that all about? That's formalizing the design. So you've got all these features, some, and they're, they're features and benefits right now. They're not really specifications, right? The customer has said, I want to take 2,000 photos and be able to store them in my hip pocket. Now you're translating in that into X amount of gigabytes or... Uh, you know, the transmission speed has to be Y because, uh, you know, or, uh, you know, the the clothes are going to go through a hot press cycle and the buttons need to withstand X amount of temperature. Right. Um, so that you're basically quantifying those features into a specification and wrapping it into a design. And that's going to help you create that functional prototype. Right. And that's the next step is the functional prototype. So once you've got the design, then you actually build the thing and see how now is the, the functional prototype. What's really the key function or the key purpose of that step? Proving out that that it's possible to get those benefits through the specifications that you've called out. So not like the Galaxy Fold where it could fold, but it would break when it did. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, basically, so if I, let's say you're, so we do this all the time where we do a functional prototype. Um, You de-risk some things because you know that in the past you've been able to do these other things before, right? You've, uh, you've put buttons on phones and you've done, um, you know, also antennas and whatever battery packs, all that's the same, but Hey, you know what? The different thing here is the screen. So we're going to focus on functionally prototyping the screen and make sure that it can, um, and the next step would be validating the design, make sure that it can fold and unfold, you know, a thousand times or whatever that number is, Yeah, probably 10,000. And, and they only managed to get about a dozen. And then if a, if a piece of dust got between two layers, it would basically disable the screen. So someone yeah. didn't do their, their prototype testing properly. And that's sad because I'm sure at some point somewhere they made the decision to do that. And I'm sure people have considered that it just, and, and who knows what had happened. Maybe something got changed out during the manufacturing. And I've, or there could have been variability we'll, we'll in the materials somewhere along the line. Yeah, right? it could Where, have even just been a tolerance to just that space exists in the, it didn't exist in the prototype, but it exists in the, the final version. You never know. I mean, it's such yep. a complex thing. I, I saw a video of the hinge design. I mean, that's some serious math and geometry going on there. Yeah, and that's a good example of something that you do a functional prototype for. Um, so you've got a, you know, a, something that folds. You don't have to necessarily make it out of the material you're going to make it on because let's say you know that, hey, uh, it's not the manufacturing part of this that's difficult for, or the, let's say the, the steel, it's the, the, the geometry that I'm testing. I've got five different geometries on making this fold and unfold. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and prototype those really quick in, in wood or whatever it is to get the answer down. 
And then once I have that answer, you can kind of iterate that and make it smaller and 3D print it and all that stuff. It feels like this is the stage where mistakes are really made. Like this is where the, the critical flaws are born. Or where they're cemented even, right? Yeah. You know, yeah. because you're deciding, okay, this is good. We're going to run with it. And you, if you're missing something, then this is when, you know, you're, you're, you're kind of going more flat out from this point. You know, you could, I mean, it, I guess it depends on the type of product that you're doing. I would almost say it's even before this where you're cementing some mistakes. People make a lot of mistakes talking to their, their uh, target market, I, I feel. Most of the people that I've run into, especially in my consulting side, haven't validated the market deep enough yet. They feel that there's a market and that's good enough for them. Well, sometimes um, it's, it's a passion thing, right? They feel it in their heart, and and that's why oh, yeah. they, they ask those leading questions, and that's why they, you know, they very very often they don't want their heart broken to find out there's no market for this thing that they're dreaming about all the time. Well, and and, and I guess to be fair, there's no harm if you want to launch a product like that, but not if your goal is to be selling it and making tons of money. It, you might you might make a, a impact in the world by creating something that's really helpful to people. Yeah, and it kind of doesn't help when you have people saying, you know, well, you know, Steve Jobs said that people don't know what they want until they see it, and Henry Ford said, you know, if if we ask people what they wanted, they'd say a faster horse, and you know, so that type of thing that these that these uh, entrepreneurs are going out and reading just validates that, you know, that that they know better than anybody they're asking questions to. It kind of that it kind of complicates the whole idea of validation when when you have a philosophy of ignore the validation. You're listening to Product Knowledge, the Graphos podcast about marketing products that improve people's lives. Oh, and one thing I forgot about validating the design. So let's say you're you're um, uh, you're creating a, a Palm Pilot again. Uh, that's also the point where you would do the drop test that drops it off of a five foot table and does a screen crack. Right. Um, uh, those types of test things. So there's it's basically it's not just the yeah we can fit a processor in this space. It's uh, it's the mechanical things on the shell. It's all sorts of little things. And you don't have to put it all into one unit. You can test it, test them discreetly with mock tests and all sorts of other things. But you need to be able to validate that the materials that you've chosen, the way that you've done it is going to work and fit, I guess, the purpose. So like you said, you don't get surprised by a hinged screen that doesn't Yeah. Well, val- validating, the, like you said, the, you know, dropping things and validating UX, making sure that people are going to be able to understand how it works once they, you know, once they're working yep. with it. Absolutely. So yeah, filing a patent application. So hopefully it's been less than a year since you filed a provisional, if that's what you did. At this point, if you feel that you want to file a patent, that would probably be the point where you want to do it. Again, it depends on how much of it you've shown to potential uh, customers. If you've actually been selling it actively, then you can't do it at this point. But, um, you know, so if you want to, this is the last, basically the last point where you can protect it is before it goes out for manufacturer. And then once you design for manufacture, how is that different than the other design process? Uh, so what you could do in 3D printing, for example, is not something that you could, uh, that scales up to um, necessarily to, to like injection molding, for example. Right, yeah. Uh, um, so there, and in some ways it's very similar and you can probably do all, all sorts of things and there's workarounds, but um, in other cases there might not be. There's um, tolerances, there's, um, provisions that you make in design to make it easier for machines to hold the part while they're assembling it. Um, 
you know, there's just a multitude of factors in scaling from building your prototype by hand to automating the manufacture of it or even doing it in batches. You know, let's say you were carving something out of wood. This is the point where you'd say, okay, I'm going to go and look and see that the common sizes of wood are, you know, one by four, one by six, one by eight. So I'm going to scale my design to that instead of working for with some odd size that now I have to constantly, um, you know, mill down or whatever it is. There was an important thing you said in, in one of your podcasts, uh, and that was that that when that you recommend when when uh, people are looking to design for manufacturing at this stage, that they go with an independent designer rather than working with a, a designer at the manufacturer. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us why you recommend that? Uh, well, at least in from in my experience, um, if the manufacturer is going to do the design, um, then they're going to keep the i not really the IP, but the design files for that. And they will do it specifically for their machines or their application as well. So while you might be able to get away with a, a free design for manufacturer there, although I think they're going to wrap it into their total cost for you, um, they you're not going to get to shop around for that design. So at some point, if you feel like, uh, you know, I want to hedge my risk here and and use two or three manufacturers because I can't, rely on just one being able to get product out on time, um, you're going to have a hard time shopping around because now you don't have the design files and other things to be able to you know, present to other people. Yeah, or if you need to move, now you'd be beholden to that manufacturer because they have the design. You have to go and potentially redesign it with another manufacturer and start all over. Yeah, and then at that point, good luck making your second version or second run the same as the first run because the first manufacturer has designed it around their processes and it might come out looking a little bit different. And I think there's, I can't think of them off the top of my head, but I've definitely seen production products where, you know, you go to a store and you pick up two that are on the same shelf and one is not as glossy as the other or the the seams don't quite match up on this one or, you know, the grip is not as tacky as the other one. And it's because there have been some substitutions and maybe they've made some changes in their supply chain. Yeah. And as I've seen with one of my clients manufacturing in China, after moving from one manufacturer to another, uh, the original product started showing up in some stores in Russia. So uh, things like that can happen as well. Step 12 is make. Yeah. Go out and make it. (laughs) <laughs> now, why? Like, is this is this a hard step? I mean, it sounds relatively easy. Find a manufacturer, boom, off you go. Yeah. It, it, so, I guess so. There's a couple of things to consider. Are you going to be making it locally? Is it going to be made abroad? Uh, when people say abroad, that's usually in Asia. Um, if you're going to do that, and and because of the costs of you know, and and these are hard decisions because if you're going to try to make it locally, some products don't lend themselves to that there's some economies of scale that just don't work um, because the costs are, you know, four or five times more in the States, for example, because we don't subsidize the cost of material like uh, China does with their government. Um, So there's certain things that just don't, you know, work with that. So I think there's a lot of, you know, and working with a manufacturer, for example, that has experience in that type of product. So um, they've done kitchenware before and know the importance of using 18-8 stainless steel instead of something that they call stainless, but it's not really. Um, and then, you know, you're going to end up with rust spots on your silverware. Um, 
it's little things like that, making sure that you're working with somebody that understands a, pr- a product that you're trying to make and has done something like that before. How vigilant do you have to be when your product is in, in uh, fabrication? I think it depends on the manufacturer, I think, um, and, and your relationship with them. And um, I've used a manufacturer in China, actually, that um, uh, works with IKEA, for example. And so they have pretty uh, you know, good quality standards. Um, I've also used a third-party quality company to go and run some inspection while they're doing the manufacturing. So what you probably want to do on the first run is inspect some of the first things that are coming out and make sure that they're okay because what you you know you don't want them to fill up several containers of your widgets and then you then you go inspect them and realize that they're all non-conforming. Step thirteen is market. And I could I could probably and tell could you probably that, that one. <laughs> yeah, that one could be a pretty long one because when it comes down to to not just uh, you know the the entry st- strategy the your, the strategy you use to decide how you're going to take this the product to a beachhead and how you're going to enter the market and what markets you're going to enter and and you know how you're going to to get this into people's minds and and change their behaviors to buy the new product that's that's a pretty deep one as far as as far as that goes uh I don't know if you can hopefully you've already decided on some of those before you've even manufactured because so let so the manufacturing kind of ties together with the marketing because you're getting your boxes made and all sorts of other things is it going to be a brown cardboard box and it gets shipped uh plain um because you're doing oem style packaging to save costs or you know did you come up with some awesome x-ply you know full color you know with you know the the apple style uh packaging that feels nice when you open it as a friction factor that you've calculated into it <laughs> um so you know I, I put marketing there as a step but really it's just one of those things that you're continuing to do through the whole process yeah it, it could be a separate circle it kind of wraps around all this other stuff right absolutely well thank you so much philip this has been a really fun call it's been great to have you on the show that's it for this episode of Product Knowledge and our conversation with product designer Philip Valitza. Visit his podcast and website at theproductstartup.com. Visit graphosproduct.com to find out more about Graphos, our services, our ideas, more podcasts, and our blog. All our podcasts are transcribed for the deaf and hard of hearing. Reach out to us on Twitter at graphosproduct or email us through the form on graphosproduct.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Andrea Schwabi.